Good morning, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Free Me TV this Saturday morning. Early, early birds get the worm, as they say. So I have a special treat for you guys. Um, I've been having a lot of requests about doing a show concerning the women of incarcerated and what they go through on a daily basis and such. And then it just so happened that Miss Paula Kinsu had reached out to me asking me if we could put together a show um, with uh, several of Michigan's wrongfully convicted uh, wives. And, of course, I jumped on that opportunity. So, so here we go. And let me warn you, the last time I was in the room with five beautiful women, things did not go so well. So hopefully this goes... Uh, a little bit better. So introducing the beautiful women of the wrongfully convicted. Welcome, ladies. If you'd introduce yourselves one by one and then um, just just uh, give a quick synopsis of your loved one's case and, and what he's going through, how long he's been incarcerated, and uh, just a little bit of words that he may want you to share for him. Uh, hi, my name is Jennifer Gross. My fiance's name is Robert Vermet. Uh, MDOC knows him as 238465. Um, he has been incarcerated for 28 years on a wrongful conviction. Back in 94, Rob was uh, convicted of first degree felony murder. Um, he, there were three. First, let me say that he is the sweetest, gentlest man on the face of the planet. He cares about his family immensely. Um, so the monster that he is being portrayed as is not who he is as a person. Um, there were two other defendants with Rob. One of them walked. One of them was already out on a $50,000 cash bond intent to do great bodily harm less than murder when he caught the case with Robert. Um, from the absolute beginning, everything was wrong. There was never a signed rest warrant. Um, his arrest was based on a third party hearsay anonymous tip from a guy who had been sitting in a bar all night and the fact that the car was registered to a family member. Um, they said he wasn't arrested, but they came and got him and held him on the ninth floor of Bobian down in Detroit for 35 hours. Um, no phone call lied to his parents, told him that he wasn't there. Um, they took a first round of statements. Robert said that he was innocent. The two other co-defendants um, who had been friends since kindergarten said that Robert was the trigger man. Um, a second round of statements were taken and Rob signed none of them. The second round of statements says that Robert said that he did do it even though he didn't. Um, he, oh, the guy who was already out on the cash bond um, looked just like the trigger guy. So there were four eyewitnesses. Three of them said that um, it was a white guy that ran from the car. Uh, one said he got in the passenger side. One said he got in the driver's side. Uh, he was 5'8 to 5'9 with long, sandy brown hair um, and a medium build. Rob is 6'3 
they call him Bones in prison because he's so skinny and his hair is jet black. Uh, what else? Um, he... Oh, through the investigation, there was another man that they were looking at, but um, this person's son's mother said it wasn't him, and so they stopped investigating him. During the arrest, uh, once court started, he waived his right to a jury trial. It was accepted in court. Um, he still got a jury trial. Now, the victim on Rob's case was African-American. All 13 jurors were African-American. The judge was African-American and two of the prosecuting attorneys were African-American. He was given a plea deal, 20 to 40. His lawyer told him to not take his plea deal because the most they had him on was aiding and abetting. And he ended up getting um, convicted of life without parole. Uh, we do, back in 2009, oh, there also was the felony murder. There was no gun found. Um, he was found not guilty of the felony. So there was no felony to escalate his charge to felony murder, which happened to be abolished in 1980. So he was convicted of a crime that wasn't even really a crime in Michigan. There was no premeditation, so it shouldn't have even been first degree murder. Um, we did get an affidavit signed by a co-defendant in 2009. Um, that being new evidence, they took it to the court system. The court would not look at it because at that point in time, that co-defendant was doing a bid in prison for armed robbery and it wasn't notarized. <sighs> what else? Oh, a court uh, fight broke out into the courtroom. So it should have been a mistrial right then and there. But he sits waiting patiently for the CIU to bring his case up front. They already do have his paperwork. Um, and that's just the icing on the cake. We could sit and talk about him for hours and hours. But my time is up, so I appreciate you listening to me. I hope everybody has a great day. Who do we have next? Who's up next? Good morning, it's Paula. Um, can you hear me okay? We can. Okay. I was just uh, grabbing my screen, my notes here. Um, good morning. Thanks for sharing, Jennifer. Thanks for having us, Thomas. And thanks for everybody coming together this morning and, and talking about this. Um, so my name is Paula Randolph Kensu, and I am the fiance of Temujin Kensu, who is wrongfully convicted of first-degree murder um, of a man named Scott Macklem. Temujin was wrongfully convicted back in 1986. He has spent 34 and a half years in prison for this crime. The victim, um, Scott Macklem, was shot in a parking lot of a college campus, and it is widely rumored that he was um, selling drugs. And we don't know whether or not he was doing drugs, but it's widely rumored that he was selling. Um, and we think that this was a drug deal gone bad. The fascinating thing about Temujin's case is that he was over 400 miles away in the Upper Peninsula at the time of the murder. And he has nearly 12 alibi witnesses that prove that he was in the Upper Peninsula during a few hours before and a few hours after the murder. 
Now, most people can't get one or two witnesses. Um, they're lucky if they can get one or two witnesses saying that they were somewhere else at the time of the crime. And Temujin has nearly a dozen. Um, his case was, uh, the situation was he was dating a girl by the name of Crystal Merrill and <clears throat> they had broken up and she went on to date uh, Scott Malcolm, who was a previous boyfriend of hers. And um, a short time later, um, Temujin had moved to the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, over 400 miles away with Michelle Woodworth, who is his primary alibi witness. And, um, and then the, the crime, the shooting occurred down in Port Huron, Michigan on November 5th, 1986 in the parking lot. Now, given that there was such a, a, a far distance, the prosecutor had to come up with the theory of how, you know, how to dismiss basically all of these alibi witnesses that Temujin had. So the prosecutor came out and said that Temujin <laughs> flew a plane, <laughs> rented a plane or had a pilot fly a plane from the Upper Peninsula down to Port Huron, Michigan, commit the crime and then fly back. So it was a ridiculous, but the, but the jury bought it. The jury um, was in the room for, I think, I think Crystal was on the, on the stand for three days telling the jury you know, what a horrible person he was. And, um, you know, she just victimized him and t said all these horrible things about him. And since she was local to the area, the jury was sympathetic to her and he was from Flint. He was an outsider. Um, so he, <clears throat> he was the bad guy that came in, I guess, got a plane somehow, flew in and killed, killed Scott and then flew away. Temujin is a, um, he's always been into the social, into the martial arts. So he has, you know, um, training in, in, in karate and um, all these different martial arts skills. And so they used all of that against him during the trial and they put pictures in, or they, they brought out actual, um, you know, devices like the nunchucks and these swords and these Kai and these uh, all these different weapons and they said that they were Temujins and they weren't um his his case was overturned um he went through the all of his appeals process his case was overturned by a federal judge in 2011 and she said basically she cited all of the prosecutor prosecutor misconduct and she said that Temujin was innocent and that he should be let go um, however, that case was overturned by, um, <clears throat> by a law that was put into place that basically <clears throat> put a time limit on when you can um, submit for innocence. So they, nobody said that he wasn't innocent. They just said, you're too late. So you need to stay in prison and die, basically. Um, there's a lot, a lot going on in this case. I know I'm at my time, so I don't want to go over here, but, um, if you just were to Google Temujin Kensu, you could find, um, a ton of information on, on this case. There's podcasts and stuff and such, and Thomas has had us on as well. So thank you for listening. And that's just a, a summary recap. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Alicia Garcia. My fiance is Jason Bowers. 
better known to MDOC as inmate 487402. Um, Jason has been wrongfully incarcerated since September 5th, 2006. Um, he has been so currently um, today of counting 14 years, 10 months, one week and four days. Um, <clears throat> Jason was convicted um, ultimately of second degree murder um, I think three counts of attempted murder, um, felony with firearm. Uh, there's like eight or nine charges. Um, so a little bit about Jason. He is convicted, wrongfully convicted out of Wayne County. Um, um, a big part of Jason's case is um, false ballistics. So he was convicted of a homicide and in 2006. And in 2008, um, I'm sorry, let me go back. So when he was when he was arrested, he um, he said he didn't do it. There's witness testimony that's um, you I've looked into it and there's false testimony. There's different stories from different people. Jason was never identified originally as the shooter, but being with a shooter. Um, so no one ever has even pinpointed him with the gun. Um, also, another thing about Jason's case is that there were multiple firearms used, and um, the man who ultimately um, was who was shot, uh, Charles Hunter, he that medical examiner never even pinpointed what type of firearm was used to kill him, um, and there was at least um, two to three firearms that were used. Um, during the um, the homicide. So the ME, the ME reports, there's no report of what he was actually um, shot with. Um, so that's a big thing. Um, <clears throat> also, another thing with Jason is that he, he did eventually take a plea, but Jason never, um, I'm sorry, he, he, he ended up taking a plea, but his co-defendant, was not found um, until he was on the run for about three months, I believe, um, after the initial after the homicide. Jason, by that time, had already agreed to take a plea. Wayne County came to him and told them, "We did your ballistics; everything matches. Um, you either take this plea of thirty to fifty, or um, you will never see daylight again." Jason had four small children at the time. And he, he was promised that if he did not take the plea, Wayne County would convict him of first degree murder and he would do a life sentence. Jason agreed to take the plea. He took the plea. Um, he actually never pled under oath. Um, and the entire time he took, when he took his plea and was talking to the prosecutor, he said, I'm gonna take the plea, but I'm letting everyone know, let it be known, I did not commit this murder. I am innocent of the crimes. He tried to withdraw his plea on sentencing day. They did not allow it, even though he was under extreme duress, of course. Um, and then months later, his co-defendant was actually acquitted um, for the same exact crime during a, tri during a trial. So he was found um, innocent um, by trial jury. Um, so that was in 2006, 2007. In 2008, um, a big thing, if you Google it, uh, Detroit Crime Lab, who did Jason's ballistics, came under fire for their falsifying evidence. It was found that at least 10% of gun cases in the Detroit Crime Lab were falsified. 
they were not, they were like 40% accurate on their compliance. Um, it was a huge thing that a lot of people are responsible for taking that down. Kim Worthy still to this day does not take full accountability for her crime lab. And she's the prosecuting attorney here in Wayne County. Um, when the crime lab was shut down in 2008, Michigan State Police stepped in and they picked cases over to look at the accuracy. When Jason's ballistics were one of those that were selected. And between 2010 and 2011, his ballistics were re-looked at and found there was errors. So basically the 2006 ballistics said that every firearm that was found in the house that Jason was at when he was arrested matched every bullet, every casing, et cetera, from the crime scene. In 2010, 2011, Michigan State Police found that that was not accurate. Um, and I, I have proof of this. Kim Worthy wrote Jason a letter and said, hey, contact Sato um, and see what they can do for you. They could do, they, they refused to do anything for Jason. And that was 10 years ago. Um, David Pouch is a person who, he was the lead investigator of ballistics at the Detroit Crime Lab. Um, actually to tie it back into a little bit with Jen and Robert Vermette. He also worked on their case. Um, in 2017, a man by the name of Desmond Ricks was, had his conviction overturned here in Wayne County. It was stated um, in court, and I don't want to speak too much on it because I don't know him personally, but what I've read from newspaper articles is that, <clears throat> excuse me, that it was set on stand by other ballistics experts that David Pouch, who also did Desmond Rick's case, was either incompetent or purposely falsified ballistics. Following that case, um, he was his conviction was overturned. He's currently suing Detroit and David Pouch for over $100 million. James Craig, who was, until very recently, the Detroit's, what is he called? The head of Detroit police, um, stated in 2017 that every case that David Pouch touched would be reopened and reinvestigated. Obviously that's false. There was like 33,000 cases between David Pouch and the Detroit Crime Lab. Um, <clears throat> so all these things add up um, to, there's all other cases. There's the case, Jason, there's Desmond Ricks, Rob Vermette. There's Jen and I have found multiple cases in which people, men in prison currently have wrote, written statements stating that David Pouch falsified their ballistics, that they're not true, he was, they were framed, et cetera. We found articles, many articles on this. So, um, you know, Jen and I have that in common. So that's kind of a little telltale about Jason's thing. Our case is currently with the CIU. Jason did a application in February of 2018. And as of February of 2021, Valerie Newman with the CIU and Cooley Law School are currently investigating Jason's case. So that's where we're at right now. So thank you guys. Thank you. Hi, my name is Nicola Klima Johnson. My husband's Vargas Johnson. Um, my brother-in-law's Marco Johnson. They were convicted in 1992, wrongfully convicted in 1992 of um, a murder, life without the possibility of parole. Um, I'm not going to speak 
um, too much on my opinion. I'm just want to speak on the facts, but I have a letter that um, my husband would like me to read. So if you guys can bear with me for a minute. Um, we thank, you know, all of you for having us and giving us support um, and all, you know, everyone, like we're all in this together and we're so grateful, you know, and um, the first thing um, I would like to talk about, talk about is the culture within so many of these police departments. The most dangerous part of the culture is the peer pressure applied to those within the department to look the other way when a crime is being committed or someone is being framed. But it has always been true where there's smoke, there's a there's fire. Detective Gregory Hill, let me give you a little background, is the one that set up my husband and brother-in-law. This detective, years later, set up Kevin Harrington and George Clark. They spent 17 years in prison and they're only released because this detective's daughter came forward and said, I knew the shooter, I seen the shooter, I told my father, he, you know, he told me to be quiet. So I will just continue on with this detective's, um, forgive me, it makes me upset, with this detective's conduct. Um, Detective Gregory Hill's history at the Inkster Police Department, that's out of Wayne County, would be unbelievable, if not for the fact that has been clearly documented. Detective Gregory Hill was caught by the prosecutors lying to a jury in a Diaz versus the Inkster Police Department. This is another officer, Diaz that sued the Inkster Police Department for discrimination. And um, this detective was involved, this detective Gregory Hill was involved and um, he was found you know, lying on the stand in this um, investigation throughout his own police department. Not, he was kicked off the... Yes. Forgive me, can you just come to the mic just a little bit because of the oh. echo, yeah, the echo is just kind of... Okay, yep, I'm sorry, you. is that good? That's perfect, right there. I just wanna make okay. sure that your words are crisp and clear. Okay, so this um, detective Gregory Hill was kicked off of the narcotics division in the Inkster Police Department. He was knowing allow murder suspects to be driving his personal vehicle. Actions were constantly reckless. This officer that was in the Inkster Police Department, Chief Gregory Gaskin also reported him. And you know, um, it was reported that this detective was taking money from people and releasing them, drug dealers, whoever, you know. In 2018, Detective Gregory Hill's daughter had come forward against him in the Kevin Harrington, George Clark case. These two men were wrongfully convicted for 17 years and Detective Gregory Hill knew that they were innocent. And if it wasn't for his daughter, <clears throat> them two men would still be incarcerated right now. She said that she saw the shooter in the case, but she also had told her father, Detective Gregory Hill, that it wasn't Kevin Harrington and George Clark. And he literally took that truth to the grave with these two men. He told her to be quiet and that that's how it was gonna go. You know, he intimidated her, you know, and in our case, my husband's case, can you imagine 29 years my husband and brother-in-law has been incarcerated because of this corrupt detective. Every prosecution witness that we had in my husband's case has came forward against this detective, listing everything from threats by this detective, Gregory Hill. They all signed affidavits that Detective Hill 
threatened them, intimidated them, and told them, if you don't say what I say, I will charge you and do the same thing to you. Threaten them with their own freedom, you know? The system has to change. You know, from um, the Michigan Court of Appeals in my husband's case, they sent it back down because of a witness statement, Brian Day. He had changed his story. The Michigan Court of Appeals sent it back and said, listen, we acknowledge the fact that something's going on here. Everyone's story is different. Every, it, there's something concerning with this detective. We need this to be investigated. The, the common denominator in all of this was Detective Gregory Hill. But Judge Wendy, Wendy Baxter, she does um, dismiss that. You know, we believe now that she was working with this detective. You know, she had ample time to just dismiss this case just on the fact of all the evidence from the witnesses that changed their stories, that came forward to sign affidavits. Um, you know, we just, it's with the CIU unit now, and we just pray, you know, that they do the right thing. You know, this is not our opinion. These are facts. This happens to people constantly every day. We're not here fighting for someone that's guilty. If you did something, we would stand by our husbands. You did it, they would take responsibility. We're here fighting for someone that did not do this. And I say for the people, you know, they always say, oh, if you can't do the crime, don't do the time, don't do the crime. Where are them people at to stand up? To These men and women are in here. Lives, some die, never get a chance to prove they're innocent. And what makes it so bad, just like Paula, Alicia, all of, all of us ladies, we have solid evidence, solid evidence, more than enough evidence to let them out. Our husbands and loved ones don't owe the MDOC another day of their life. We do not, and we're not gonna go away. You know, it. it it's terrible when a, when you can turn truth into a lie and people will believe that lie and the truth becomes obsolete and you're telling and you're screaming and you're screaming but I hold that you know the higher courts at a, a standard too because when they say something is wrong and they send it back to these judges they need to enforce that them judges let these people out you know let our loved ones out um, there's so many that's already um, supposed to have been out exonerated, but they're still being held in the Wayne County Jail. Their stuff was exonerated four years ago. I can't remember that. I think his name was Darnell Ewing or something like that. Overturned his sentence, but he's still sitting there four years later. You know, I, I just don't understand the system, you know, but we need to stick together. We need to support each other. And, you know, we, we just want our voices heard. We want them to do the right thing. It takes one second to wrongfully convict them. And it takes us years if we ever even get our husbands out on the truth. Not a lie, but it's the truth. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Hello, my name is Michelle Fisher. Uh, my husband's name is Richard Fisher Jr obviously known as 273569 in the NDOC. He was 
wrongfully convicted of first degree premeditated murder. He's been in there for 23 years now on a life without parole sentence. Um, his co-defendant, uh, Paul Tomlinson, um, murdered a victim right before my husband's eyes in 1998 or 1997 in October. And in November of 97, um, he was he was uh, in jail, not on the murder charge, but on a, no, a noise ordinance. Um, so they came to the jail and arrested him there. Um, you know, I, I'm just going to say telling his story does not get any easier. Um, when he was a uh, when he was arrested and during the interrogation, um, they tried to swing it where he would do a false confession. False confession. Um, he was, you know, telling the truth that he was there. He seen Paul murdered the victim, and he was threatened with his life if he told anybody. So he didn't say anything about the murder until you know, when they came and arrested him in the jail. Um, he asked multiple times for an attorney. They, they declined that. Um, they wouldn't let him have an attorney. When he was telling his story, um, they kept on turning the tape recorder on and off, um, trying to trip him up on... Um, telling Paul's story of what happened, um, which wasn't the the right story because Paul is known in Lansing as a liar and he ganked people. That means like he ripped them off. And um, two weeks before two weeks before the the murder happened, um, Paul and his girlfriend were were making this plan up and his girlfriend was actually friends with the victim. And so she would go back and tell Paul that, you know, she had all this money and stuff like that. And so um, Paul picked the victim up and then picked my husband up, which he didn't know what was going to go on that day. And And they, Paul says, we're going to go and we're going to meet some people to get some weed. And so they went, they went to the Campus Hill Apartments in Okismo, Michigan. And that's where the crime happened. And um, Paul hit the victim, struck her, um, and killed her instantly. Blood force trauma. And my husband witnessed everything and the the day of the trial the judge told him told my husband that he had no constitutional rights no nothing so he was convicted as of day one and in 2005 
Um, my husband gets a letter um, in prison uh, from Paul saying, I'm sorry, you're not the one that did it. I'm sorry I put an innocent man in prison. I will, I will help you if you have your lawyer come and talk to me. Um, my husband had tried sending that out to his family, to, to everyone he knew, the news stations, everything. Nobody would listen to him. Nobody would help him. Um, and then in 2000 and, what was this last year? 2020, in July 2020, Paul's cousin was in prison at the same prison as my husband is in. And he wanted to do an affidavit of what Paul told him 20 years ago when his cousin picked him up. His, Paul told his cousin everything about the murder, that he killed somebody, you know, and he was, he was going on and on and on about how Richie or Richard didn't do it and just on and on. So we have an affidavit from his cousin, the letter from Paul saying he didn't do it. And I know I'm getting close to my time probably, but I would like to tell everybody, you know, it just takes one lie, one, one lie, one cop, you can, don't think this can happen to you because it can. Just one lie and, and you're hit. Michelle, are you done? I think so. <laughs> yeah, I'm done. <laughs> it, I mean, you're more welcome to, if you, if you have anything else, I, I just didn't know if you cut out or not. No, I'm done. That's basically the gist. And if it, if anybody wants to look it up, it's all out there on social media. So he had no prior record before this one felony. That's it. One lie. All the witnesses in his case, the cops coerced them to go on to their agenda. So it looked like Richie was the one that killed that victim, but he didn't kill her. I have 2,100 pages in his transcripts. It was nothing but a made up show. I mean, if I can read his transcripts and figure out, figure out the mistakes that they did in Ingham County, and I'm not no lawyer, anybody could go on to his transcripts, go, his appeal is on Google. They, they did not, they, his decision was, I remand this back to the, to the court. You know, they, they just threw it out. They didn't want to deal with it because they knew from day one that that cop in Lansing was lying. When he kept on turning off and starting the tape all over again, multiple times, tried to get a false confession. They have no DNA. 
no, no nothing on this. It was just he said, she said case and made up, made up lies from the witnesses. And I'm done. Thank you all. <laughs> thank you, Thomas, for having me. No, absolutely. And thank you for sharing your story. And, and ladies, I mean, uh, you know, it's it, it's so hard for me to sit here and hear this stuff, you know, and, and know that what you're saying is true. You know what I mean? And, and it just, man, this stuff really affects me. So, so if I have this correct, all you ladies, men are incarcerated for murder. And it all... Uh, it all, Mich Michelle, can you mute, can you mute for me? I was muted. Or that might be Nicola. Nicola, can you mute? There you go. Thank you. So, um, it, 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 it sounds like, okay, so everybody's in for murder and it, and, and it's, it's very, very speculative, right? to where, you know, these detectives and these prosecutors have free reign to maneuver things around that the way that they want because there's just so many facts of these cases missing. And, and in all my episodes, it's coming out that these prosecutors are just, to me, it just sounds like they're just grinding gears and just pushing people through not even really caring about investigation, not even really caring about what what really happened, not even really caring about the truth, just pushing people through and getting convictions and 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 letting the appellate courts deal with the mess. You know, um this stuff is hard, man, and and so okay, so I want to go back to Jennifer, start back at the top, and I want to hear how you guys deal with this, what you've described on a daily basis, every day, just out trying to get your word out and plus pay bills, survive, you know, raise your children, um, deal with the, 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 the social pressure of, you know, uh, being called foolish by, for standing by or just, just all of the pressure that you ladies have on you every day. I, I really want you guys to express to the world what you have to go through just to prove someone's innocence. So I guess the hardest part for me is um, that everything that I have to prove his innocence, whether it's the ME report, whether it's the ballistics, like Alicia said with David Pouch, it's all in black and white. It's all in open court testimony. And I do real estate for a living, so I kind of make my own schedule, which makes it a little bit easier to fight for him. Um, in the beginning, I think the hardest part was having to say the same thing and convince people that he's a good person. And because you always get the, oh my gosh, he's in prison for murder. What's wrong with you? He's not, he didn't do it. And so my biggest challenge was talking to my family because my family is very religious and getting their mind changed to, to, to change their mindset to change. Right. Um, it's easier now, but you know, you go to bed by yourself every night. I come home after a crappy day and I don't have a shoulder to like, I'm going to start crying. Sorry to like lay my head on. It's hard. 
you know, you get a 15 minute phone call. Um, paying bills, it's not easy. It's, you make it happen. You do what you got to do. Um, but you have to sit down, you got a budget, especially like if extra food needs to go out and you need extra money for this, or it's his birthday, like you try and make everything work. And it's like this big ball of chaos that you have to squeeze down into something that will fit into the size of up in the palm of your hand so that you can get everything, including him on what he's dealing with on the inside to work. You know, it's um, going out and talking about him and dealing with the stress of that now uh, I don't really care. I have some vendors who work for me who no longer work for me that tell me, I can't believe that you put this on social media. I can't believe that you do podcasts. I can't believe that you talk about him. Why wouldn't I? And if people don't want to work with me because my fiance is wrongly convicted and has done 20, has lost 28 years of his life, then I don't need to work with you anyway. You're going to judge me regardless. But one of the hardest things is that he has never met his granddaughter. She's three years old and she hears him on the phone. He's got his own special ringtone. So when we video visit, if she hears him, she wants to see him, but she can't because we're not married yet and they won't allow her on screen. Fighting that I think is probably the hardest thing because my youngest, the youngest is in college. She thinks he's at school and she doesn't understand why he won't come home. So that's me kind of in a nutshell. Well, thank you. Sorry. Um, so day to day, um, I feel like it's hard. I feel like we could talk about Michigan Department of Corrections and their exploitation of um, inmates, families, and money. I could talk, we could talk about that for hours. Um, Realistically speaking, you know, if you talk to someone who's not familiar with criminal justice or familiar with MDOC, you'll hear about, well, they have food and they have, you know, a bed and it's, you know, they have a roof over their head, so they should be fine. That's more than what, you know, some homeless people get, or that's more than some people. The truth is like, I feel like some of them would probably rather be homeless. The food is subpar and that's putting it nicely. I mean, they have food that comes in that says like not fit for human consumption. And yet we're feeding it to 33,000 individuals under the care of MDOC. So um, I, I feel like financially between financially and mentally, I think those are the biggest tolls that it takes on families. Um, I met Jason inside. He has four children, um, three of which are grown, but they went their entire childhoods without their dad. Um, I don't want to speak too much on them because that's their personal story, but um, I have four children from a previous relationship. Um, so building a relationship with someone inside prison walls as a child um, and young adult, it's difficult. Um, it's difficult to have those moments and have people ask, you know, your kids ask you, well, why is he there? And, and how do you explain wrongful conviction to a nine-year-old? How do you explain that, you know, there's bad people on the streets and there's good people inside? Those are things you can't explain. Um, phone calls it's three almost three dollars for a 15 minute phone call um i go through personally <laughs> close to 200 dollars a week on a phone um you know they need they need everything that we need out here plus more everything is um 
so inflated for pricing. They, they're paying double, triple what we pay out here. Um, so again, back to the exploitation of, of our families, but it's expensive. Um, you have secure packs, you have, they need shoes, they need clothes, they need food all the time because they're not gonna eat what, what's being prepared um, in the chow hall. Um, so it's, it's financially, it's a huge, it's a huge burden. Um, Jason's um, material wise, uh, financially, he's, we're very blessed. His, fam his family is super supportive um, and they take very good care of him. Um, but mentally for me, it, it's hard. It's not an easy, it's not an easy feat. Like Jen had mentioned, um, you know, loving somebody in prison, it's, it's interesting. You get a lot of interesting looks. Um, I've been doing this for about two years. So until recently, my Facebook page was very private. I was very quiet about it. I didn't, not because I was embarrassed, but because there are people that look at you like you're crazy. Like, you know, he's a murderer because that's what it says on paper, regardless of what I know. You know, if you look Jason up on Otis, uh, the offender tracking system, 487402, he is a convicted murderer. It doesn't matter what I know or what we all know. That's what it looks like. So to explain that to people, um, I have four kids from a previous relationship. So that was an interesting conversation. Um, you know, friends, family, coworkers, I've gotten looks, people judge me, but at the same time, I'm not here to care what other people think about. I, I know, or think of me, I'm sorry. I, I can't care because if I care, Jason will sit there forever and I will be, he'll never be home with me. So I have to fight the good fight, I fight it every day. Um, you know, it's, uh, Jen and I are really close. So we are shooting messages off each other, you know, 12, one o'clock in the morning. Did you find this? Do you know this? Um, so I've, thankfully I've met some good people along the way. Um, you know, Jen being one of those, Jen and I are really close. Um, so I'm lucky that way I've gotten, you know, good friendships out of this ride, but it's, it's difficult. It's some days you want to scream and cry and punch walls and, and everything, but you have to keep going because, um, they need us, you know, but point blank period, you know, that's, that's kind of what it comes down to. So I think mental toll is hard. <laughs> some days I cry a lot. Uh, some days I get really pissed off and then, um, I think one thing we all have in common on this thread is that nobody's given up yet. So um, I don't plan to, I think there's really strong women on this thread and I don't think that we plan to until they're home. So that's what we got to keep doing. Who we got next? I'm sorry, Paula. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I would have went first. <laughs> um, so I think the hardest part is the loss. You know, um, Tamo been in there for so long and he has he has lost so many good people along the way. He was married for 22 years. Amako had fought for him for, you know, two, over two decades. And, uh, and she died of cancer in 2012 while he was still, you know, he's still in, in prison. And, you know, I met him um, in 2019 at the end of 2019. So he had seven years to grieve, but 
you know, he's got friends and fighters and supporters that, uh, you know, are now ill. He's had many that have, um, that have passed away. So I don't know. I mean, I, I just can't imagine, you know, just the loss that they, that they deal with on the inside. And, um, and I know that that's really hard for him. So for me, part of the fight, you know, I mean, when I hear him talk about these people that he's lost, it's just really hard. And one of his big supporters right now is in hospice. And it's just, you know, this guy's fought for him for over a decade. And, you know, it's just, it's, that's just really hard. And uh, trying to be strong for him. Um, in terms of work, I, I work from home. I'm, I'm black to worry about, um, you know, too much on that front, but just the mental stress of the continual fight, like it just keeps me up at night. I can't sleep. And I'm just constantly trying to find the next thing to help him, you know, like, is it a podcast? Is it another supporter? or a journalist like what is it going to take to get this innocent man out of prison because the system failed him again and again and again and his case is before the CIU right now but why is he still live there everybody knows he's innocent nobody's saying he's guilty and it's just it's you know some days like Alicia said you you have days where you're angry you have days where you know, you see these Michigan leaders post things on social media that just make you want to scream. And it's really hard to not react. His fate is still in their hands, you know, and it's just, there's so many wrong things and it's just frustrating. So I guess, you know, what we've tried to do is try to pour all of that emotion into the fight into you know reaching out to legislators into trying to change the laws into trying to you know build awareness and educate people that this can happen to anybody um you know i think that that's where we we find our our hope and and then it's people like you thomas that help us tell the story and give us a microphone to speak and we just we're thankful for those um, opportunities. Oh, thank thank you. you. Okay, I, this is heartbreaking, ladies. I just want to say first of all, I think if the prosecutor's immunity was taken away, and they would be getting charged, a lot of things would change. You know, I don't think. Um, We'd have this corrupt system as we do, and people would just stand up, the judges, just to stand up to do the right thing. Um, I talked about my husband, but I met my husband through my son. I have one son. In 2010, my son was charged with armed robbery for $200 worth of weed that he was with a friend. This friend took this weed off this drug dealer. They charged my son with armed robbery, gave him 12 to 20 years for $200 worth of weed that he didn't even you know, but praise God, you know, God knows best, you know, my son you know, went in there, you know, it's a struggle for me financially trying to take care of him. My husband requires nothing. I send him maybe $50 every two or three months, you know, 
he works in there. He does what he can. Um, but I met my husband through my, my son, you know. My son used to talk about this man being so kind. My son would talk about my husband and use words he never used with his own biological father. So I was thinking, you know, who is this man that loves my son so much? Who is this man that is so good in character and action that loves my son, you know? Because I have to be honest, there's no way I can sit in prison for 29 years and no, I did not do this and still be a good human being and not be angry. I don't think I could be laughing. You know, I don't think I could be calm. I don't think I could just handle myself the way my husband does. My husband has made me a better person. My husband has given me strength. I've lost a lot of family because of my relationship with my husband. You know, in 2014, I accepted Islam. That's a whole nother conversation. Lost a lot of family because of my faith that I chose, you know. Then I, I met my husband. He's also of the same faith, you know. And um, I just want to say for everybody that's struggling, when you feel the distance in time, you know, that's when it's lonely, when you feel the distance in time, the quiet nights when we're alone. Or when the kids are sick and we're just tired and we just, they want their fathers or their brothers, you know. But what's most heartbreaking in my husband's story to me is he told me he went 17 years without a visit. He went 17 years without a visit. I know we all have our lives, but there is no excuse on this earth why one of our loved ones should be gone without a visit for 17 years. So many families are in the fight and they try. And then they just like, no, they're not getting out. Court said, no, we just give up. We, so they accept that fact. I'm not never going to accept that fact until God makes that crystal clear to me. But I try everything I can. And I'm not going to go nowhere. And I hope to be standing next to these ladies when their men are released so I can share in their joy or the struggle that they're going through right now, you know. But it's important for our, our, our loved one's mental state that we're there. It doesn't have to always be financially, you know. Uh, J-Pay is not going to replace a visit. You know, take, take some time just to go see them. It hurts both of us to leave. It hurts us, breaks our heart to leave them, that we can't take them. And it hurts them that they can't go. But what hurts more is our absence. We have to be there for them, to keep them strong, to lift them up. With me, you know, and, and probably the other wives, their husbands tell them, just me talking to you for 15 minutes uplifts me out of this place. It gives me some sense of peace in this chaos and this craziness. There's so many things that, you know, um, conditions that you are in when you're in prison that maybe we didn't realize waiting in line to use the bathroom. You're waiting in line for the microwave. You're waiting in line for a shower. 
my husband waited in line for six hours before for a 15 minute phone call. The system is unfair and is designed to break you. They take people in there that's innocent and not broken. My husband had never been in trouble. Never been in trouble. Never got a ticket before this current. Nothing. Never been. Nothing. You know, my husband and brother-in-law, you know, and, and, and the rest of the men and women that are wrongfully convicted. When is our day going to come? Just like Paula said. You have so many, four or five, it could be 2,000 pages of the truth. Why are you still trying to deny that? It took you a few minutes to sentence and take our loved ones from us to give them life without parole. But you're taking years to do the right thing to free them. And Gretchen Whitmer and all of these other political figures need to do something. Not get on this microphone and... Oh, we're going to do, this is my husband right now, not get on the, you know, on the stand in front of TV. Oh, yeah, we're about prison reform. Oh, yeah, we've done this. You know, it's like him where they call it. They call it. Take, take the call. Take the call. Okay. Take the call and let him speak. Okay. Listen, um, you're on, okay? You're on the podcast, and, and Thomas is so generous, he wants you to speak. So anytime you want to start talking, they can hear you, okay? Okay, okay go ahead. What's the topic? Uh, whatever you want to say, Sadiq. Tell him the floor is his. Yep, he said the floor is yours, so go ahead. You're on speaker. Well, hello, Thomas. Many blessings, man. Yes, he can hear you. All right. Yeah, I'm telling you, I just want to think about a few things. You know, number one, you know, uh, my innocence. You know, a lot of people find themselves in situations like me without a voice. I've been blessed to have a voice that is my wife. You know, I'm grateful for her, and I'm grateful for this opportunity that she's given us today. Uh, shot a little light on our case, you know. You know, my first thing I would like to bring our attention to is that, you know, every prosecution witness in our case has come forward against This detective's history is known. He's been, uh, his daughter came forth against him in 2018 in a case concerning Cato and and, uh, George Clark. These men were convicted of a murder and sat in prison for 18 years. When his daughter came forth against him, nobody could believe something like that was possible, that this detective had been on force for so long had to betray his badge and the trust given to him. And every witness in our case has come forth against this detective. Every one of them has said in some way, shape, or form that this person has done something to coerce their testimony or statement against me. Now that we have everybody listening, I would like to ask one question. Why are we still in prison if every prosecution witness has came forth against this detective? Why are we still in prison 
if there's no witness to this crime, no fingerprints, no gun, no evidence whatsoever to point to me and my brother as the assailants in this crime. If all the evidence shows this, what is it that keeps us here? Most people would tell you that what keeps us in prison is that the prosecution has a, situ has a system that wants to maintain their conviction. They're not concerned about innocence or guilt. They're concerned about a win. And we're saying, listen, it's time to get rid of that old mentality. It's time to get rid of that old blue line. And it was time for those people who have been punished wrongfully. Those people who have been incarcerated wrongfully. Those people who have been getting done injustice for 30 years. 30 years me and my brother have been in prison. It's time for them to release us from prison. It's time for them to give us a second chance to be with our family. There's no justice in this holy, innocent man in prison. There's no justice in maintaining the conviction that you know is based upon the false testimony of a witness. A witness that came forward 25 years ago and told you that he was high on cocaine. They told you that the detective threatened him. And a judge still holds us in prison because in the state of Michigan, the law says that when a witness changes his testimony is preferred by a defendant, if you is you the suspect and not trustworthy. I mean, what kind of law is that? What kind of statute is that? That when someone finds the courage to come forward about something that's happened to them, to correct a wrong that they have made in their life. The judge said, well, we don't want to hear that. We're not concerned that. I mean, I think it's time for somebody to listen to this witness. And I think it's time for somebody to listen to the witnesses that came after them. Right? If every witness is saying something about this detective, I think it's worth investigating. Not just our case, but every case is going well, Nicola, give him give him my blessings and and um and just I, I admire his strength and and his courage to to continue on, um and just know that you know there's 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 people out here that are fighting for him and and eventually we're going to to, to shake the right tree and I'm gonna make sure of that so. Um, I'll let you speak with your husband if you commute, and then we'll let the ladies continue. Thank you so much, Nicola. Thank you, Thomas. I'd like to also say if you um, are interested, you can look up um, his case with all the evidence, Court of Appeals, the affidavits. He's on the Voice of Detroit, right? So if you can let people know, um, he was featured in an article, him and his brother, Marco. Um, so that would give you a lot of insight, too, on the case. But um, I will come back when um, I'm done talking to him, and thank you again. Yep, thank you. Hello again. Um, I would like to mimic um, what all the girls have said, um, how hard it is to have our loved ones in there. Uh, it, it's day to day. You wake up without them right next to you. You go to work, you know, hoping that nothing has happened in there. 
in the in the prison system because every day there's stabbings, there's whatever. So so you worry about that. And then, um, like I work in a doctor's office, so when I get home, I'm I'm immediately then you know go into his go into his case or just going through it, thumb through it. You know, we have a we have a paid attorney. Um, his case is in the CIU. His case is also in the prosecute special, like a lifer program, kind of like the CIU, but it's with the prosecutor. So his case is there. They're looking at that. And it's like, if his case is all over, why ain't somebody doing something? Why did I have to do a paid attorney to get some action? Yes, I didn't have to have get a paid attorney, but I'm not going to sit here and wait for action to be taken. He's already sat long enough, 24 years of his life. He was in when he was 19 years old on something that he didn't do. He shouldn't have to wait any longer. And then I have six kids. But two, my two younger kids, six and eight, they have a pretty good relationship with him. They are, you know, every day I have to hear is, is Richie, they call him Richie. Is Richie coming home yet? Is Richie coming home yet? And you don't know what to say to these kids, you know. Um, and then there's the phone. They can only use the phone for 15 minutes. Um, and it's 320 for one 15 minute phone call. So some months, you know, I, I just, I will put the money on the phone because I want him out of his, out of that space. 15 minutes of not being in there does him greatly. So I spend $400 a month on the phone just to get him out um, of that space. And then you have quarterly um, quarterly care packs because I know from firsthand working in the prison system in the food service, the food service, the food just it sucks. And um, it, it folks, it's not a playground, you know. Yes, I didn't have to come into this life, but. When I was told on Richie's case in 2018 that it was from another person that was in the prison system, they told me about his case, and then I was, like, researching it and everything, and I was like, I'm, I'm going to fight, you know, and we were nothing then. I was just going to help him, and then one thing came to another, and then we became lovers, but... Um, if you are a good person, you will sit and you will fight for this person. You know, you, you just don't sit back and, you know, just let somebody weller in prison like most of his family did. You know, he had nobody. Um, it, you know, it was me when I came in in 2018, and, and, it, and it's still me, you know. If it wasn't for Jen or Paula or Alicia, 
you know, we all made a bond in this system, you know, if it wasn't for them, I think I would be in the loony bin, you know, it, it's just a everyday struggle from, you know, trying to get them out, um, to talk to them on the phone, to go to visiting because I'm seven hours away. And so with me being so far away and me being having a job, you know, I can't come down here and visit him all the time. And I was the only one that visit, visit him. He never had a visit for 15, 16 years. And, you know, it, it's, it's an everyday struggle. And the system, you know, if, if Whitmer, if Dana Nessel, if Carol is hearing this, you all need to do the right thing. The prosecutor in Detroit, you need to do the right thing. Prosecutors, lawyers, everyone around Michigan, you all need to do the right thing. Because honestly, how can you guys sleep at night when people are in prison for something that they did not do. Thank you for thank you, Thomas, for having me, and I think that's all I need to say. Well, ladies, thank you, thank you all for coming on and, and showing your number one, your bravery, and, and coming forth and just speaking about these things. Because, as several of the ladies have mentioned, I mean, you, you guys are ostracized in 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 society for for carrying on these relationships and, and you're looked upon and you're judged and you're talked about and all of these things. And so for, for you, you know, you ladies to come on and, and voice your, you know, your, your opinions and, and show your emotions. Um, I give you guys all the respect in the world for, for that strength. And, and I'm here for you guys to, at this point, to answer any questions that you may have questions that you know like how do you deal with this stuff or what were you thinking and 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 such and and so let me um if if you guys are going to ponder on on those questions let me start off by saying this to sit here and listen to you ladies is 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 so emotional for me because Just hearing you guys express your pain as the same pain that I used to go through, you know, every day, all day long. And I'm sitting here listening to you guys' story and I'm and I'm like, you know, I was guilty <laughs> of of what they accused me of, just not to the extent, you know, they were trying to put me away for life. Um and and they didn't care about my life story. They didn't care why I was doing the thing. They didn't care about any of those. So I say that to say that it took me years to come to grips with that, to understand and ask myself over and over again while I'm alone with God. And I would ask him, like, why? Why did I get so much time for, you know, this and you know, such and and to, to to know that to put myself in these gentlemen's positions, 
And I know they're asking or have asked these same questions like, why is this happening to my life? Why am I the sacrificial lamb in this, in this instance? Why? And, and, and not get any answers for years and, and, and have to come to grips with this is just what your reality is to me is, is, is beyond inhumane. It's beyond torture. Like it's, that's, it's, it's just beyond torture. You know, when I think of torture, I think of things to the body, you know, and the body's material is flesh and it'll heal and it'll bruise for a little while. But when you're, when you're doing things to the mind and the spirit that never heals, it never changes. It'll always stay there. I'll never trust people again to the extent that I have because as, as one of the ladies mentioned, you know, my childhood friends turned on me and snitched on me and lied against me. You know, um, people that have told me that they've loved me and that they would always be there for me no matter what fell off after several months, sometimes a year or two. It, it, it was watching, it was watching these people that, that were so close to me in my heart and meant so much to me distanced themselves because one, they couldn't deal with the pain. Uh, they, they, they just out of sight, out of mind, you know, and, <laughs> you know, I'm still a human being at the end of the day. Right. You know, and, and I'm still sitting in there just wondering why these things happen to me. And and who really loves me when when the 20 contacts turns into 10 contacts and and I used to be able to when I would have to fill out my phone list, I'd be able to fill out the whole list with numbers, you know, and then as time went on, I, I couldn't so much anymore to where it was like two or three numbers, you know, and and through all of this, you know, I have a daughter and I have a daughter with a woman that is using her as as a tool of of vengeance you know of pain against me and my parents you know and to know that you're going Torture, through just like you said Hannah. just just well and 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 I'm and I'm, I'm describing all of these things because Again, like I say, I was guilty. It was easy for me to reconcile some of these pains. But when you're not, you know what I mean? And you're just trying to figure out, like, why has this happened to me? There's there's no re reconciliation you know, for that pain. And, and, to, and for these men, I mean, I just heard this man speak as calmly as and as humbly as possible after 30 years of being wrongfully convicted incarceration it's it's just the the human the human anatomy the human consciousness is is beyond understanding when it comes to that you know how we how we just reconcile and we humble ourselves to accept the path that the lord has given us and just continue to try to fight and and push on. So, you know, on on my toughest days, I used to sit in my room. I would go to sleep. I actually ended up because you're only allowed one pillow, and the pillow is film thin. 
and and um we would have to buy pillows from laundry or things of that nature people going home we'd tell them man let me get your pillow or whatever and i specifically had a second pillow that i would sleep with curled i I would cuddle with the pillow put it between my legs and just hold the pillow with my eyes closed and thinking that i'm just home you know and that the pillow is is somebody that I'm, i'm holding and hugging and um and and some nights that that's what would help me go to sleep some nights I, I would have to exercise. I'd be exercising all day, just taking, punishing myself to be able to. I was so exhausted that I would just fall into the bed and just go to sleep because I knew there was so much on my mind that I would never get no sleep. And these are just the things that I would do every, every day. As some of the ladies mentioned, six hours waiting on the phone. These aren't lies. We we would we would call spots in line. We w- it would you know we'd have to walk around the dorm, going to people's cells, knocking on the cell. Man, you're you're in line for the phone. Okay, I'm after you. No, 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 dude over in cell 106. He's after me. I'd have to go to 106. Tell him, listen, man, when you get off the phone, come find me. Okay, okay, I'll come find you. Now what happens is, this dude don't come find you and 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 say, hey, listen, I just got off the phone. Somebody else gets on the phone. You lose your spot. Now, how upset do you think that person is? And this is how fights ensue over a phone call. You know, um, it's it's getting on the phone and my mother telling me as soon as she picks up the phone, I can't talk to you right now because your daughter's home alone and somebody's in the house with her and hanging up the phone, knowing that I can't call back for an hour and sitting there ready to rip somebody's throat out well i wouldn't that day i wouldn't let anybody on i wouldn't let nobody near the phone and i had my peace on me and i told them anybody comes near this phone you better be ready to die for it because nobody's touching this phone until i can get back on it the just the the waiting looking at the phone every 15 seconds for a whole hour picking up the phone to find out is my daughter still alive? Was she kidnapped? Is she is she safe? What's going on? It's it's these occurrences every day, month after month, year after year that that drives us insane and and we have to stabilize that in some fashion and it is you women it's you women, it's our moms, it's our fathers, it's our children, it's the women that take that 15-minute call, right? That come and drive out of their way and go through the hours of excruciating embarrassment and torture just to come in to visit us for two or three hours and spend the 40 or $50 on the food to make sure that we have a nice visit and, and, and knowing the, the torture that it is that you're leaving, but yet you still give me a smile and tell me that everything is going to be all right and you'll be back soon. It's these things that keep us going and moving forward because it does give us something to look forward to. So that's all I have to say on that. Thank you, Thomas. I just... I, I just want to echo what you say about this being torture. You know, it's a it's torture for, for the inmates. It's torture for the children. It's torture for the, the wives. And I just have to say that.
Michelle, I can't imagine having kids. It's hard enough, just me and my dogs, you know, and I just, I can't even imagine having all of those other pressures and responsibilities. Um, I just give you guys so much credit. Um, and Alicia too, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if she's still on, I can't see her, but, um, you know, when I talk about the loss of life that Temujin has had from his friends and his family and his, you know, his wife and, you know, his pets and his children and, um, you know, I mean, the loss that they feel, it's more than just that. They, they have like this lost sense of security when they're in prison behind these walls of steel and they're with all of these really, a lot of really bad people. And they're very concerned about us too. And if we miss that call, they're, they're like, what's going on? Is she okay? Is she, you know, because they know what's happening in, in there and they know what kind of people are in the world you know we're kind of blind to you know some of the bad that happens even though we know it exists i mean one of temujin's big i don't want to say fears because i don't think he fears anything really but he's just so worried that something's going to happen to me you know and one of the struggles that i have you know, Thomas, you asked about the different things that we struggle with our, our, what do we go through? One of the bigger things that I have problems with are all these things in the house that go wrong, that break, that I have to fix, that things, you know, um, that I, I just, I don't want to have to deal with a broken car, a flat tire, uh, all of the stuff that I have to deal with. And he wants me to trust him to, you know, to help um, to tell him so that he can, he can help as best as he can from behind prison walls. So I'll tell him about the, you know, the things that are happening out here. And a lot of times it involves, you know, somebody coming and fixing stuff. And then there's a stranger in our home that he's like, he's terrified. He's like, he, he wants me to wear my gun. He wants me to, you know, um, protect myself. He wants me to know, he wants other people to know who's here. He wants to know the name of the person, the name of the company, the name, the phone number. He wants to know all of this stuff because he, he knows the stories from being in prison of, of things that go wrong when other people come into your home. And it, it's just, it's, and it's, it's, it's very strange for me because I've always just taken care of shit. Like I just always call, call somebody and have them come over and fix stuff and write a check. And I know I'm overpaying and I just take care of it. And now it's completely different because knowing what he goes through and knowing how concerned he is, it's just, it's a complete, it's just completely changed my life. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it's different. And I love that he cares so much about me, but I'm also sad that it it's it it just it just feels so strange that I have to go through all of these extra steps when I've always just done it all on my own and I love him and I trust him, but it's just it just puts extra burdens on me because it's like I can't just fix this. You know, I have to tell him and then he's going to want me to do all these other things that I don't really want to do, but I get it. Like he's concerned and he has reason to be concerned. So that's another one of the big stresses that I, that I find myself in. Yeah. And, and, it, guys. <laughs> I was going to say kind of like guilt too, like 
during um, COVID, so everybody knows I'm here that I did, I was in an article with the Associated Press when Ken Ross was infected with COVID. But like during COVID, I learned how to change my own GC, uh, my GFCIs in my bathroom. So Paula, I understand what you're saying. Like, and sometimes I won't tell him what's going on and I feel guilty about that. But knowing that he's in there freaking out, I don't want to put that extra stress on him. But then on the flip side, if he finds out about it and I didn't say anything, that's a whole nother situation you have to deal with. So we, it's kind of like finding a work-life balance. You have to find a prison life balance. You have to either full disclosure or no disclosure and both sides of it, it freaking sucks because you have to worry about how they're reacting. If I end up in the hospital, he, he's running around the prison acting like a fruit loop and I don't want him to get in trouble. Seriously, like, and you can I hear know. it in their voice too. Like when he gets upset, his voice is like this. It's like this deep growl thing. And you don't know how they're going to react. Are you going to get in a fight? Are you going to catch a ticket? Are you going to end up in the hole? Like what's going to happen? So it's hard. Like you're scared. They're scared. But you have this guilt too because if you do tell them, their mental state is bad. And you don't want to do that to them. Yeah, but I would rather know, and and because because, um, for one, it it makes me feel connected, right, and it makes me feel important, and it makes me feel like I have an opportunity to help, and I can deal with all of that. Yes, I may, um, but again, you you have to know your husband. You know, if if, if your husband's a loose wire and he doesn't have control over over his his emotions or whatnot, then yes, of course you you have to balance that as well. So I guess it's just knowing the situation, and I guess some advice there would be knowing where your husband can help and where he can't help, and and knowing when to ask him for help and when not to. But but there has to be times, yes, where, you know what, this is a good thing where my husband can help me out and let me involve him in this so he can feel like he's he's still part of the family. And yet, some instances, knowing I, I just can't let him know about this because it's going to set him back for days or such. So, again, it's 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 keeping us involved, but not worrying us because that's it. I mean, when we ha when we hang up the phone. There's no other connection to to that scenario at all other than than our thoughts and our thoughts can can run absolutely wild, especially when we don't have all the all the facts, you know. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, I just I just see my husband for the first time in per person ever 10 days. ago. You know, first time ever seen him a couple of times on the video visit, but I've known him since 2016 used to write about, you know, my son and when my son got separated from him. And so we just built a connection like that. You know, our faith has strict things, so we never cross the line or anything like that, you know. Well, the, 10 days ago when I crossed that bridge for him, I told him, you know, 16 months ago we made our intentions and we got married. And I told him now one day I'll cross that bridge for you. And I did. And um, on the way home, I stopped in St. Ignace and I went down to this pier and it was cold. It was like, I got two infections right now from it, from 10 days ago, two ear infections. 
Um, I went out on this pier. It must have been like 30, 30 mile an hour winds. It was cold. It was raining. I was soaked. My sock shoes. But he called them just so he could hear the waves crashing against the rocks. So I stood out there for 45 minutes waiting for him to call. I was out there 45 minutes waiting for him to get back to the pump. And then, you know, I stayed there. Um, and that morning before I left, I stayed in Sault St. Murray, you know, and I told him there was this little, you know, coffee shop. He loves hazelnut coffee. And um, I, I told him they made these crepes, you know, savory and sweet desserts. And he, he said, have you ever had one? I said, no, I haven't. He said, no. I said, okay, let's go get some. So I had him on a speakerphone. We ordered a cheesecake crepe. I got a cup of hazelnut coffee with whipped cream. And I sat there and waited for him, you know, and I ate some. I explained it to him. It, it really does my husband good. He feels so connected. He's been to the grocery store with me. He's been to the banks with me. He's been to the duck pond with me. You know, he's been to all types of stuff with me. And then I'll send him pictures. So he'll know in that moment what we were doing, where he was at with me in this experience. <clears throat> and this is the thing, you know, you can't wait for moments to happen all the time. You have to grab them. You have to create them. And when it gets hard, so hard, and both of you feel like you're not communicating good because of the stress, You just have to, like, depend on God, depend on your faith, depend on the good times that get you through them, you know. And I'm just so fortunate with my husband. He's so blessed. I'm so blessed. Like I said, you heard him, Thomas. He's always like that. He's so loving, patient. I've been going through a lot of things, you know, and physically. I put him through a lot of stuff. And I, I'm surprised that he's, you know, Still calls and not like, I'm just going to call you before I go to bed. I'm not talking to you the rest of the day, you know. But he never does. You no, know, he never does. And I thank God because I feel guilty, you know. He deals with so much in prison. You know, he's the imam of our faith. So he's responsible for 60 to 100 other Muslims. And they, you know, are human beings. And they all don't always act right. So he has to deal with them and the consequences they need to be dealt with. You know, he, he takes care of all of that. But everybody loves my husband. He gets along with everyone. It doesn't matter if you're Muslim or not. It doesn't matter if you're black, white. It, it doesn't matter to him. What matters to him is character. And that's what he has. And I couldn't do it after 30 years. There's no way I could. But I just want a chance like the rest of these ladies just to go on a walk, just to take a car ride. We talk about many dreams, the home we want to have, going on a road trip, going camping, things, you know, that um, I was married before for over 20 years. This man was a good man, worked hard. Gave me everything I needed. I never wanted for anything. But he never gave me what I needed internally. You know, and this man does. And they say, how can you love a man in prison? What can he do for you? 
It mm. is everything that matters for me. Mm. Everything that matters for me. That's what he does. And you don't have to understand it. And you don't have to like it. But he gives me, uh, like I've seen who I am, the real me for the first time with him. It's like I heard my laugh for the first time with him. I see my smile for the first time with my husband. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's it in a nutshell, like how you said. And and everything that you said, Nicola, I, I can promise you is 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 generating good, positive motivation for him. Because how you described, you know, you the pictures and, and being just being part of everyday life. You don't even have to be discussing anything. Just for me, knowing that I'm on the phone with the person that I love and we're just silent, you know, but you still feel connected, you know, just hearing each other breathe is enough of a connection, you know, for me just, just to, to take myself out of that element. But the pictures, let me tell you, when I would get pictures, I would, I would look at these pictures for hours and just study every detail of these pictures. What's in the background, who's in the pictures in the background, What's what's being moved, you know, and I would picture myself in a couch that's in the background, things of that. Anything I could do to escape the reality that I was in. Right. Is is what I would do. And and these things helped, you know, like you say, just being part of everyday life. And for the for the wives and the mothers out there that are dealing with what these ladies are dealing with, it's essential that you keep these men alive every day in the children's lives in your life by either, you know, setting a plate at dinner time or making sure that the children still follow the father's commands and know and the children know that this is still the man at the house. That was that was the issue with me was my daughter was never taught that she wasn't taught just because your daddy's not here, you know, means that you don't have to listen to what he says. And now because of that, her and I relationship is very, very strained, you know, and if you want your children to respect their father and listen to their father, even if you don't plan on being together, you still want your children to respect their father and listen to their father. You have to you have to reinforce this, even though that they're not home, you still have to go on with life as if they are there. It's very important, and and as as very good the things that you do, Nicola. So, is there anybody else that has anything to share, or feelings, or questions for me about how I dealt with things, or handled things, or? I'll just piggyback kind of off what Nicola mentioned, because um, I know that you had us here today to talk about what we do for um, our husbands, but. I think just to piggyback off that is that um, these men are not weak. Like I, I, it's not, you know, we can sit here and we can boohoo and talk about all the things we do, but um, especially in my, I would say in my own case, um, people that are incarcerated are some of the strongest human beings. Um, there's nothing weak about, um, you know, being incarcerated. And um, there's a lot of strength that comes with that. And I feel like, 
we're super strong women. I, I, I'm so happy to be on here and, um, you know, stand with these women and fighting for our husbands, but we have some pretty dope ass husbands. Okay. So, um, because at any time, you know, we talk about how strong we are, but we get weak and we cry and I cry a lot. And for someone to be incarcerated and literally some of these guys, I mean, I think Jason's the only one on here who has numbers and not letters by his name, but, um, you know, to know that they're sitting in there and they're eating this shitty food and they're being, you know, ordered around and bossed around and told everything. And yet they're still, you know, wondering about our day and making sure we're okay. And like Paula said, <laughs> the list of going on and on about making sure that we're safe in our environments. I do the same thing with Jason. Um, Jason's from Detroit. I am not, I come down here. I'm very blind to what goes on. And Jane's like, you shouldn't go here and you shouldn't go there. And I'm just like, it'll be fine, babe. It's, it's fine. And I just have so much faith in humanity. And like Paula said that, you know, they're in there with the real bad guys. So they know what could happen. And, um, I think just the strength that they possess, like Nicola said, just being able to be in prison for 20, 30 years and still be able to smile and laugh and, and do all those things. I just, I, I want to give a, a, a handout and a, a, a shake to that because it's, they're strong and they're amazing men. And I'm, regardless of what society says, regardless of what anybody else has to say, people on my timeline, my friends, my family, um, I'm, I'm proud of who I am and I'm proud of, of, of Jason and, and obstacles that he's overcome. And I'm proud to stand next to him. I'm proud to stand next to these women. And, you know, I always say I'll scream it from the rooftop. So there's no breath left in my body. I know what's right. And, um, you know, I have faith that all of these, these men of these women are coming home. Um, and we could have many conversations about, about wrongful convictions and what it is, but, um, to anyone who's watching, if you guys please look up Michigan wrongful convictions, look up how, how real it is. This isn't some bullshit story that we made up. This isn't something that's, that's fake. This is a very real thing. Um, I, we could do statistics and numbers on Wayne County, Michigan, which is Detroit. We could do them all day. Um, I could shoot the shit about this all day. Um, just a small snippet last year during the middle, in the middle of a pandemic, Michigan was second in the nation for wrongful convictions overturned in the middle of a pandemic. We fell one to two behind Illinois, which we all know Chicago Cook County, terrible 20 wrongful convictions overturned in the middle of a pandemic. Out of the 20 of those, 13 convictions were overturned in Wayne County. That's where Jen Gross's husband's from. That's where Nicola's husband's from. That's where Jason's from. Wrongful conviction is real. It's a, it's a real thing. It happens. It happens more often than people admit. And we have to do something about it. And Thomas, I really want to just thank you for having us. Um, Paula, for, for doing this. You guys, this, this, is, this is a huge thing. And I think... I hate this ride. You know, that's kind of what we call it. This, this ride is super shitty. It's super expensive. It's super expensive to your mind, but I'm so proud to be on here today and to stand with these women. Um, and in this fight, you guys, because it is a fight, but we might get tired and we might cry. We might hit shit and all that, but I don't plan on giving up until Jason's home and I can sit down here and boohoo and I can cry, but at the end of the day, he's coming home. I know he's coming home and I'm going to do whatever it takes. So 
this is not the end. This is only the beginning. So Thomas, we might be seeing you again, but, and, and thank you for the opportunity once again. I know Paula said the Zoom might end, but I just kind of wanted to close with that on my end. I appreciate you so much. And, you know, you guys look it up, like, look, look up wrongful convictions, look up wrongful convictions in Michigan. This is like a real thing. So thank you again. I love you all very much. Um, so that's kind of all I have. <laughs> Thanks, Thomas. Well, thank you guys, um, or ladies, and, and, um, and I wish you ladies the, the best. Um, you guys are more than welcome to reach out to me at any time. Your, your husbands are, are more than welcome to reach out to me. I have an open platform for anybody that wants to speak about any wrongdoings in their life. Again, the, 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 the overarching message of, of, of my whole program is unity and for all of us to come together to help one another because at the end of the day, we're Americans. And the only way that this is going to change is, is through unity our communities to step up against this crap. We need leaders in the community. We need our leaders to get out there in the streets and start raising awareness in your communities about what is going on in our police departments, what is going on in our, in our prosecutor's office. It's, it's out of control. It's been out of control. And we need to start fixing this because there's a lot of pressure that that is is in these pipes you know and and we all know what happens when when pressure builds up in pipes you know so it's i mean it's it's i I don't ever want to come across as threatening i don't ever want to come across as out of control or emotional or angry but when enough is enough enough is enough and it's time for change I, I think I can speak for a great number, many of Americans, when I say that I'm tired of hearing these friggin' liars getting up on the stage and smiling in my face and telling me what I want to hear so they can get my vote and then go up here and wreak the havoc that they do. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of seeing these false prophets and these false people just coming up and, and demonizing us and, and, and driving our country into the, the shithole that it's becoming. So um, I'm very frustrated. I'm tired. I'm tired of out here working every day, trying to grind just to, just to pay bills, to squeeze by. I'm tired of hearing the, the people come to me about their loved ones and, and the injustice that happens every day. I'm just tired. Um, I don't watch TV. I don't smile hardly anymore because there's just too much seriousness going on. And this is why I have this platform. So you guys are more than welcome to, to come on at any time that you have something that you want fellow Americans to, to hear. So I love you guys. I respect the hell out of you guys. And just continue doing what you're doing. Thomas, can I say one more thing really quick? Sure. Can, can I do a plug really quick? Absolutely. So you guys I, plug away, I, plug away. Okay. So I am, um, partnering. I kind of, I'm, I'm a canvas coordinator in Detroit for Michigan justice advocacy. And we are trying to get good time back in Michigan for our inmates. www.mijustice.org backslash sign, sign our petition. We're bringing it to legislators September 14th. 
and we need, you don't have to be in Michigan, sign anywhere, anywhere um, in the country, you can sign our petition that you back Michigan good time for prisoners. Michigan is one of the only states that doesn't have good time, so no disciplinary credits. It was repealed in 1998. Um, Joe Biden helped do that um, in 94, father of mass incarceration. So um, www.mijustice.org backslash sign. You can follow Mission Michigan Justice Advocacy on Facebook. Um, you can friend me, Alicia Garcia. Um, we, we are trying to bring that back for our inmates. I know personally it doesn't affect life prisoners right now, but we're trying to get life off the table in Michigan as well. So we're just trying to do what we have to do. So www.mijustice.org backslash sign. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Anybody else plug away, give them all. And then I will take them. If you, if you ladies want to send me through, you know, on the side, uh, these links, and I will put them in the description to this. So. Thank you for all you do for us, Thomas. We really, really, we really appreciate you. No, it's my pleasure. Yes, Thomas, thank you for giving uh, me and my husband the opportunity, especially for him to speak. Thank you, Paula. God brought me to you somehow. And I appreciate all of you ladies. And um, I, I hope to be with all of you on your journey. Thank you, Paula. It was a great idea. Thank you for, for letting us know that this was what we should do to come together and Thanks for um, for the wonderful idea and for everybody being here today. I appreciate it. Yeah, so I, um, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up here. And um, as I said, you guys, even if even if it's just you just need somebody to talk to on the side, I'm always here. Um, I hardly sleep. So however I can help. Thanks, guys. I'll see everybody very soon. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Thomas. Thank you, Thank you Bye, guys. Thanks, Thomas. Thank you, guys. So that's it. I, I hope that you guys enjoyed the the um the program. Uh, again, as always, it's very very emotional for me. Um, it's very hard to hear from the other side some of the things that they go through, the emotions that they experience, things of that nature, it definitely definitely flashes me back. It definitely puts me back um, into those emotions. So uh, I do tend to get emotional down. Um, but this is, again, this is why I say every day when people ask, you know, when people ask me how how I'm doing, you know, how's my day? How have I been blessed? I'm always blessed, you know. Um, there's nothing else I can say after that, you know. Uh, I may talk about the day's events or whatever, but I always start out with the fact that I'm blessed. I'm blessed to be home. I'm blessed to be free. And as as uh, somebody had mentioned earlier, you know, I think that these guys would rather live under a bridge than be in prison. That's absolutely true. There's no question you know, I, I will never go back to prison again, um, and I, I will be homeless. I was pre I was I was pretty much homeless inside. I mean, you 
you wear the same clothes every day, you're washing your clothes in, in dirty, dirty, dirty water that's washed with everything else on the compound and, and you know, three or four huge machines. Um, so it's your your stuff comes back smelling worse than what it went in, dirty, grungy. So, you know, I have no issues with that. I don't want to be homeless, but I, I definitely don't want to be incarcerated again, you know. So that that is a very true statement. So once again, I I appreciate the love. Um, I'm, 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 this just is, this is what I'm here for. So, thank you guys for tuning in to this very important subject. Um, thank you guys for uh, listening to these ladies and um, just share and get the word out. I will be putting links in the in the description that these ladies talked about so we can get uh so we can get you know some signatures on on these bills and and whatnot so once again thank you guys and that's it that's all i got man y'all take care stay blessed stay proud stay strong stay true stay honest with you self and just be blessed man